I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies whose frowned and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well knows passions red, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Azamandias. King of kings, look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains around the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare. The lone and level sands stretch far away, Azamandias. So if you find yourself in the desert, and you see that thing in front of you, and you recognize your own mortality as the wind blows and your eyes sting from the dryness, and you're dying of thirst already, you don't even know it. When you're in the desert, it comes upon you quickly. You don't realize that you're in harm's way. You don't feel anything going wrong until you fall on your face, half dead from dehydration. That's how the desert is. I've been there. I, I, I've stood in the deserts of the, the Negev uh, in southern Israel, and it really is like that. You, if you do not continuously drink water, regimented, every like 15 to 30 minutes, if you do not continuously do this, you will at least get very sick and or possibly die very quickly, very quickly. So if you find yourself in that situation and you're looking upon that wrecked statue and you have to recognize your own mortality, that life is nothing more than a bushel of pain and unmitigated misery, you may ask yourself, how can I interpret these things? How can I make sense of these things? What, what can I do? Of course, the answer is, you become a philosopher. <laughs> That's what the answer is. You become a philosopher. And in a, in a sense, although some of us have academic training, everyone in the world is, is a philosopher and thinks philosophically uh, in certain moments of crisis. The, the same way that in those moments of crisis, people will turn to poetry. They'll turn to philosophy to attempt to answer these questions. With wisdom, what is wisdom? What is philosophy? Why do we need it? Why do we seek it? To, to, to help cope with the terror of death and annihilation. That's what Franz Rosenzweig said in the beginning of his monumental work, The Star of Redemption. If you find yourself in that situation, you don't have a copy of The Star of Redemption. Most people don't, probably. The next best thing is to listen to the Rogue Philosopher podcast. To tune in the Rogue Philosopher podcast in the midst of the desert if you have cell phone reception, which you might not if you're in the middle of the Egyptian Sinai, and then you're fucked. 
in any case, uh, the Rogue Philosopher Podcast. I'm the Rogue Philosopher. And today, we will, in a general sense, from the mishmash of my mind, approach the question of what is philosophy, philosophia? What is it? Why do we still need it? If we even have it, I would suggest to you that postmodernity has undermined and, and annihilated much of its credibility. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe we can build a better system, but I doubt it. And this is the Rogue Philosophy Rogue Philosopher Podcast, and I am the Rogue Philosopher. Uh, so named, not by myself, but by others, that appellation has been attributed to me. So, let us begin in the face of the desert of death and the sands of the misery of life, the sandstorms of deprivation, depravity, degeneracy, and death. Why do we have philosophy in the face of such things? Of mortality, of disease, of agony, broken bones, war, genocide, killing, rage, futile rage, laser-guided bombs, and biological warfare. How could we have been so stupid as humans? So stupid. Unforgivably stupid. In any case, in any case, let us at least start by dealing with this question. What is philosophy? What is wisdom, and why do we seek it? This is the Rogue Philosopher. I found some articles. Normally I wouldn't tell you the date that I've done the recording on, because there might be a lag time between the time the episode goes up and the date that it's recorded. But I must in this case, and, and even if it's gone up and it's a few months later, I mean, maybe, maybe some time has passed, and, and maybe... There are additional stories that have been added to these, but I find them both uh, very inspiring and profoundly troubling, okay? Because the greatest, most primal fear that people have is that of, of death, of extinguishment, of obliteration. And we have our religions, uh, and this is, I'm not saying, you know, necessarily that it's a bad thing to be a religious person, that's up to you. I, for one, have tried various religions. I've dabbled in various mysticisms and different uh, worldviews of thought, like, like so many Western consumers. Uh, it almost suggests a level of dishonesty, but I, I'm, not, I'm not willing to uh, cast aspersions because people are are seeking they're desperate and that's genuine whatever else i mean it may be that if if uh, a westerner uh embraces an eastern religion it may be a valid criticism to suggest that their grasp of it is shallow or uh that their intentions are shallow and they and they may be but they may not be and people really need something whatever it is um 
I don't think the majority of us, and I don't, I don't think I am myself. Now, others may be, and my hat's off to them. There are two levels. There are two levels of dealing with reality, according to Maimonides. Uh, he was a physician in the 12th century uh, in the sultan's court. He was the physician for the, the ruler. He was one of the greatest physicians who ever lived. Um, his dates are, I think they're 11, uh, um, 1137 to 1204. He lived a long life. He worked exceptionally hard. He wrote massive works uh, about Judaism and the Talmud and the Talmudic law uh, and every facet of, of life. Um, and in his guide, of the, uh, a guide for the Perplexed, which is just massive tome okay it's it is one of those philosophical books that to to read it is it's a it's a journey you're entering a different reality when you read Maimonides guide for the perplexed it is a gigantic work okay and it's written such that you or I can't just pick the thing up unless unless one is exceptionally intelligent and insightful he writes in metaphor. He writes in, in logical constructions of arguments. He's deliberately uh, uh, evasive. Uh, he writes in such a manner that the perplexity is, is not decreased for most, but increased. He only wants to clarify the perplexity for his most you know, treasured students and those of the highest of education in, 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 in Judaism, in Talmudic law, in... Uh, Midrash in uh, Haggadah in Legends, and you, you don't you don't come to Maimonides if you're a beginner, uh, okay. And, and Thomas Aquinas, he was heavily influenced by Maimonides. Many thinkers across the centuries, across the centuries, okay. He was writing at the height of uh, the the um, Im- imperial. Uh, gosh, was it the uh, I'm blanking. Uh, the 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 Mongols had yet to smash the Baghdad government, so the Muslim society was still at its apex, at its zenith. Okay, and so the medicine that he practiced was exceptionally advanced for the time, and and many many cures that would still be beneficial today if people followed them. His dietary advice, I've, I've yet to try to follow it. I, I hate breakfast, but he's famous for saying something to the effect of, in the, bre- in the morning, eat like a king. In the middle of the day, eat like a worker. In the evening, eat like a pauper. So you have a gigantic meal in the morning, like breakfast, steak, and meat, and uh, protein, and I mean everything, anything, everything that you want, anything and everything. Your first meal of the day. Okay, I feel the exact opposite personally. I can't eat when I wake up in the morning because I never feel well. Um, you know, to eat a heavy meal in the morning, it would kill me. It's it, and but the way we live is is uh, is devastating. I mean, you know, you eat. You know, you're eating something and you run off to work and you cram something in that's, you know, you try to eat it, it's light, it doesn't provide enough long-term energy, it's full of sugar, genetically modified, it's, it's uh, full of weird empty ca- calories and dyes and chemicals and crap and, 
Okay, and then you go to work, and you what you you most of us are living in an urban setting. I'm speaking in very general terms now, so I don't mean you personally. But you go to work, and you're sitting in your cubicle, and you're on the phone, or you're on the computer, or whatever. You're tabulating data, or you're, you know, you're you're speaking to people, clients in your office, one after another after another. And it's devastating, and and you, you're not moving. You're sitting still. You're not up and around enough. You're you're not getting enough fresh air. It's it's devastating then you have to eat a quick lunch in 30 minutes or less and so you jam that in and you're running 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 maybe there's if you're lucky there's a a coffee shop next door to where you work or a few doors down and you you can get something some tea or something some coffee and i don't know uh, a a breakfast sandwich or some damn thing uh who knows a cinnamon bagel or a sandwich or something or a subway and you run back to your work and you're and you sit for more and more hours, and you're di- or you have it in your cubicle, and at lunch you have 25 minutes to eat, and it's devastating. And you, you try to get home, and you're in traffic, and you're sitting in another chair in your car, and you're sitting there for another hour, maybe two hours, and you're, you're, you're just devastated. And you get home, and it's 6.30 at night, and you've worked from 8 to 4, and it took you two hours in transit, and you had to get there by 7, so you had to get up at 5 in the morning. You're devastated. This, this is not a healthy way for us to live our lives. And you get home and you, you eat something, you eat a, a big giant meal because you feel devastated and dizzy and exhausted and you probably haven't had enough water and you're dehydrated and, and you, you eat something like that and lie down and put on Netflix, you know, and you have an hour or two to watch your Netflix and by nine or ten you've got to be asleep. You have to be asleep or else you're never going to get up in the morning again at five, five thirty. Okay, this is, this is the exact opposite of how Maimonides um, pr- prescribed human beings to live, to be at their most optimal optimal health, okay? His prescription was, I'm getting way off topic here, aren't I? It's kind of fun. A great big meal in the morning, the first thing in the morning, and that provides the strength for you that lasts all day. And as your day progresses, you eat steadily less and less and less. And by the evening, you, you don't need to eat much. You've had enough for the day. You've had your calories. Eat like a pauper. And you'll sleep better, uh, and your health will improve, and, you know, it'll help clear out the toxins and everything. That's Maimonides, and a a great physician, um, a very great philosopher. And he said that we live, he he meant Jews of his day, Middle Ages, but you can apply this to any of us that are philosophically inclined or religious. And that's the majority of us. Even even if you... uh, if you're not a religious person, you're still a philosopher. Everyone is a philosopher. Everybody, you know, some of us are trained in it, and we have the academic credentials, or we have the, the we're steeped in Aristotle or Plato or something, Hegel or Marx. Even God help us, Marx, what an evil man. And there are two levels. He said that the Torah, which is basically what he meant by the Torah, is everything that has to do with how you live, including God, your relationship to God and to everybody else around you. The light that comes from heaven is Torah, um, and the light is in the words of the law. Okay, there are two levels. It's like a golden apple wrapped in silver filigree. That's from Proverbs. Okay, I've mentioned this before. The silver level is, everything is is, is very literal, um, 
when you're in trouble and you're hurt, you pray to a literal being who listens to your prayers and he'll answer them for you. And maybe you don't imagine a big guy sitting up in the sky, because after all, you are an adult. But you do imagine that you will be punished for your transgressions. He knows. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake, right? Um, and he knows how to help you. Um, you can petition uh, if, if you're, you're cold or you're sick or you're hurt or you're afraid. Um, you can ask him for aid. You, you take things at a more, it's still sacred. It's still Torah, and you're still following the laws correctly. It's as if, uh, if you have a child, and you don't want them to put their fingers into a light socket. But you, you know that they're, they don't understand electricity, and there's no way that you can explain it to them, because they're too little. They don't have the, they don't have the, the vocal knowledge to understand. They don't know what these things are. It's, it's too abstract. And so you say, look, you, you mustn't put your fingers in that light socket because if you do, a giant snake will leap out of the wall and bite you and kill you and you'll die immediately. Okay, have you lied? Yes. But really, no. No, because the goal is you don't want your three or five-year-old or whatever to put their fingers in the light socket. You got to tell them something, and they're not going to understand amps and volts and power and bzzz, okay? That's the silver level, according to Maimonides. We, we need these benevolent falsehoods. And for most of us, we, we can't quite get past that. Even atheists, they're not doing battle with the divine on the gold level. They're seeking to destroy the silver level, the literality of religion, the kind of religion that maybe is abusive and does terrorize your children. Um, there is a case to be made for that. But they're, they're still on the silver level themselves. They think in their sophistication that they've advanced and that they're above it. You know, and some of them appear to... Maybe they don't. I don't know personally in their hearts or souls or minds, and I should give them the benefit of the doubt, but it appears as though they are uh, denigrating and looking down on those stupid religious idiots, and some of them are idiots. I'm not saying that all of them aren't, but there's a kind of arrogance about them that, that it turns me off, and it always has, and and I, I think it's it, it doesn't demonstrate that they've overcome or surpassed, you know, they haven't evolved past themselves, that literal silver level. They're still on that silver level themselves. Um, and if they're, you know, they're driven by a sense of urgency to save the children, okay, that's, that's something else, okay, because there are situations, okay, but there are situations where it's a reflection of the parents, not, not necessarily the good or the evil in the religion. Uh, a good person is going to extract the goodness from their worldview, their philosophy, their religion. A gentle person is going to find gentleness in it. Tolstoy. Okay? An evil person is going to find the, the, the verses in the scriptures that strengthen their, their cruelty and, and help them in their, in their uh, uh, tyrannical rule over their family. That's a ref that's, it might be a reflection of the evil in the religion, because human beings built the religions, too. Okay, but it doesn't necessarily mean you throw it all out or that all religious people are, are doing this. There are, I'm sure, plenty of... I'm sure there are plenty of broken, damaged uh, atheists who hurt their children, too. Okay, so... But they're on the silver level, too. Okay? The gold level... 
says, I know nothing is going to happen to you if you follow the commandments or break them. Nothing is going to happen to you. There is no divine authority that's going to happen, you know, come down and strike you down if you break those laws. But people, most people would be incapable of coping with that. They'd break the law, it'd be pure anarchy. They'd go berserk. The gold level is, I know you're advanced enough and you're mature enough so that you can handle the fact that the divine has created the laws and the fact that there are laws is evidence of the divine and that is all. The example he would often use is if you're on a ship and the ship is sinking and you're going to die, are you angry at God or are you grateful that the laws of God are universal and uniform? Okay, The fact that the boat is sinking, even if you drown, is a sign of divine intervention because those laws are uniform everywhere you go, anywhere you go. I'm doing a piss poor job of this, I'm sure, but, but what I mean is that the, the fact that we live in a world of such sophistication, okay, is proof it's not deism. He doesn't believe in deism, but he doesn't he doesn't accept the literality of the scriptures. He sees the people who wrote the Hebrew Bible as the most advanced, intelligent, and lucid logicians in the nation of Israel. He studied a lot of Aristotle. Uh, there are a lot of Orthodox uh, Jews who, while they respect Maimonides and his piety, they don't accept his, his thought because he dabbled too much in the Greek uh, worldview, the Greek mindset. And that's, that's another, I'm barely fit to speak of such things for I'm not, a, I'm not, a, uh, uh, I'm not an observant Orthodox Jew. I'm a, I'm a, a, a half-crazed, uh, I don't know, <laughs> grew up in a trailer, trailer trash, you know, white Gentile. Uh, and, and believe me, the trailer, when we lived in the trailer, that was an upgrade. Before that, it was literally a garage. I'm not kidding you, a garage. That's, that's another story, which I won't get into all that much ever on this podcast. But moving out of the garage and into the trailer, I actually got my own room. It was fantastic. And it had a door that I could close it was great, <laughs> but, but, um, so Maimonides, um, Maimonides wrote for those on the gold, those maybe five people in the whole nation that he taught who knew all of the advanced sciences. And, and Maimonides dealt with a, a higher authority, logic. Uniformity. The laws were, were, were um, as any physicist will tell you, the laws of physics apply everywhere you, in the universe and anywhere. And, and whatever laws they are, they do not change, and they do not change because you want them to. As a matter of fact, it, 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 it would go so far as to say that the, the creator who made all of this made them so well, and, so, and he's so powerful, yet he cannot break his own law. So if you reach a level of, uh, of, of being evolved, and your mind 
is a reflection of the higher intellect, which is, is above the sphere of the moon. Okay, you, The higher up you go, you're dealing with uh, intellect. You're dealing with almost like a universal mind, a cosmic mind. And at its highest, you have the uh, unmoved mover, okay? that, that still point at the center of all things, that created all things. If you reach that point, you, it's almost as though you too are part of that divinity. And you are, in a way, enlightened by, by the purity of intellect. It doesn't mean you're going to have a mystical experience. Plotinus, a lot of people misunderstood Plotinus, and they read the fragments and they think that he was a mystic. He may well have had some qualities of mystics. Um, but my teacher, she taught me that Plotinus wasn't having mystical experiences and out of body and, you know, when he left his body. No, it was his his connection to the intellect, okay? Uh the higher mind was so strong and tremendous that it was as though he was part of a greater mind of intellect, not of hallucination, not of uh, uh, going on an astral trip. It, it was an understanding, an enlightenment, like, like a higher presence of, of, of mental clarity and it's almost implied that if you reach that point, you will continue to, to rise. You'll continue to evolve. And nothing can hurt you. It's almost as though when you reach that point, you, you accept the divine hand is in all things. I wish I could say this better than I am. Uh, what, I'm, what I'm ultimately getting at is these articles, uh, they're on... Um, uh, let me find them quickly. I remembered a few minutes ago what they were, but now it slipped in my damn brain. So let me very quickly look. Because it's important. It's important today that if you have any, any interest in consciousness, in philosophy, in the afterlife, if there is such a thing, in any way, you want to know about these articles, okay? It's on express.co.uk, and there are about four or five of them. They're linked in succession uh, across the weeks and months. Today is the 9th of February, 2019, okay? Now, I've read them. I don't need to look at the articles. I don't need that as a refresher. I just needed to find uh, the sites that they're on, express.co.uk. Okay, scientists, physicists have now f believed that they have found or are very close to finding the central axis of consciousness in the brain. Kind of pisses me off. It means they're going to say there's a little homunculus that indeed does drive the brain and the body around. Like some little monkey is sitting inside your head and yanking on the controls, right? Okay. I guess there's an axon or a neuron that encompasses the entirety of the brain. This is the uh, earlier today, this morning, I read this. It's a vast neuron that circ it circles the entire brain. Why they haven't discovered it before, I don't know. But, but they think it is that massive nerve that touches each and every part of the brain. All of it. 
and it seems to be in, 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 encircled through and intertwined with the whole brain, okay? It's white matter. That is the central axis of human consciousness. They say it is you. The article says, that's you. We found, we're on the verge of finding the seat of consciousness where you live in your brain. The ghost in the machine, perhaps, for lack of a better word. Um, and they have found that after you die, your brain, for at least five to ten minutes, that's why they can revive you, continues to function after you're dead, after your heart has stopped. And even after that point, when the neurons begin to shut down, your brain doesn't stop firing and functioning. You aren't unconscious. You, for hours, I think it's one hour, one to five, or something insane like that. And my first thought was, oh my God, that's, that's unspeakable. Does that mean you're lying there in your dead body and you're trapped in your dead body waiting for everything to finally go black? No, it means they're on the verge of discovering the afterlife. And physicists, I mean, these aren't stupid men, okay? Physicists, scientists, probably they're atheists, believe in a higher consciousness. Because Einstein said energy cannot be created or destroyed. And Einstein, his theory is when you accelerate matter to the speed of light, it becomes energy. Energy is not lost. When it becomes matter, it's merely changed in its phases. What does that mean? It means what I said before. All matter has an element of consciousness in it because if it didn't, you couldn't derive consciousness from it. And I know that, that, that some of the hardcore logician atheists could, will never agree with me about this. They'll, never, they'll shoot me down and they'll try to say I'm engaging in sophistry. I am not. Matter at all of its levels, of its phases, up to and including plasma, which the majority of matter in the universe is plasma. They think they call it dark matter or dark energy or whatever. Okay, no, it's, it's, fuck, it's plasma, okay? This stuff, whatever this stuff is, in the Greek, ancient Greeks, they called it hule, hule. Okay, matter, stuff, the primary stuff that makes up the world, that makes up everything in it. They didn't see it as dead. We see it as worse than dead. It's non-living. And so the, the Western worldview has been for a long time, even, even against Christianity, it formed in this manner, whereby you're alive, the soul comes into your body when you're born or before you're born in the womb, you live for a while, and then your body dies, and the soul departs. That's not what these scientists are saying. They are not saying there's any such thing as a soul. But what they are saying is that the energy that now makes up you, your body and your mind, and your, your for the lack of a better word, your soul, is eternal. It's eternal because energy cannot be created or destroyed. And that the entire universe is made of energy. And so, before you're born, you're part of that energy. When you're alive, you're you. You have energy. There's, there is, they can see your aura. You give off electricity and light and heat. Okay? And, and your brain is firing. It's made of electricity. The core constitution of your brain 
is neurotransmitters and electricity. It's all quite physical. There's nothing ethereal or ephemeral about it. It's very physical. And when those neurons are firing electrically, you're alive. Everything is electric or, or magnetic or this higher energy, which I don't know what they will call it. I don't know, plasma, I, uh, 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 plasma, the electric universe, I've, I've become increasingly enamored of that theory. It's, it's a fringe theory. Um, uh, or maybe they, they, they will call it, you know, just energy. That everything is made of energy. You know, maybe like what they say in China, they call it qi. Everything has qi in it. Or even Wilhelm, uh, Wilhelm Reich. Okay, he called it something else. He called it orgone. Because he thought that the manifestation of the core of that energy system was, was sexuality and the orgasm. I think there's something to what he says. I don't think he's a fraud. The more I've, I've begun to read in his work and I've begun to engage it, I, I can't just dismiss what he's saying or write him off. I think, I think there's something to what he says. And, we, and now and we know we're bathed in energy. Any All levels of light are bombarding us right now as I speak. My cell phone right now is pumping out uh, radiation and the, and the modem in the other room is zapping me through the wall. And the you know, radio waves and, and x-rays and gamma rays and any kind of rays, regular light, heat... All this stuff is, is, we're bathed in it. And I, you know, they can put a helmet on your head, okay? The God helmet, I'm sure you've all heard of it. And it can zap a part of your brain. It shuts some of it down and it enhances some of it. The, the, the temporal lobe, okay? Temporal lobe epileptics, uh, like Dostoevsky, uh, or Mother Teresa. Not Mother Teresa, uh, Teresa of Avila, okay? The mystic, all right? They had seizures and felt the presence of, of the divine. Now, I don't know what that means, because I don't think there is a God out there. I think if there is, it's in here, inside. And it's not because there is a God, it's because there is a subconscious mind, a deeper mind that's, that is somehow, when you're in a heightened level of consciousness, a peak experience, you tap into that state of consciousness, almost like a radio receiver or you know, cranking up your, your computer to a different mode or your engine is at its highest uh, revolution, RPMs. When you're in that state of, for lack of better word, uh, let's call it temporarily for the sake of our argument, let's call it God consciousness, okay? When you're in that mode of consciousness, you're tapped into the, the, a deeper, the deepest wisdom that there is. You may have an extraordinary mystical experience, or you may, like the philosophers, have an extraordinary spell of intellectual clarity, like all the, the blinders fall from your eyes, and the, the fog is zapped out of your brain, and, and you, you fucking know things. You just know them, right? And I do think, I, I do, and I'm, I, I, I know... I have some friends who will be deeply scandalized by this. Well, it's fine. Let them. They, they obviously, they must know my idiosyncrasies after decades. Um, you tap into that state. Okay? You are connected to the deeper energy of the universe. You're tapped into that deeper energy system of consciousness where everything is conscious. All matter is conscious. The peak experiences that you have 
your every cell in your body is functioning on a level you can't feel their their little consciousnesses do they have it yes but it isn't like our brain or you or me but they have to be awake enough to know these nutrients are good for me these ones are bad okay how the hell do they know that the plant the plant on your windowsill how does it know the sun is grow is shining through the upper right quadrant of that window and the damned leaves i've said this before the little branch things or whatever they they reach up for it they reach up for that light which helps nourish them think about it for a moment a plant the damn things live off sunlight they live off light all right if you deprive them of that light they die they die. Now they need to get stuff from the dirt and water and nutrients and things. But if it weren't for the damned light, light is their primary energy source. Light. Okay? You, you burn dead trees, what do you get? You get heat and you get light because they release the energy that they've taken from the sun. Okay? This is, I'm not, this is not mystical stuff. This is real. This is reality. And those scientists say the same thing about consciousness. They say the same thing about consciousness. When you, when you die, you don't die. I don't know what happens. I mean, people have had near-death experiences. We've all been bombarded with all manner of, of stories from the most unbelievable uh, and incredulous to perhaps the most credible and believable. You return to that energy source and you started from there before you came here to this world. It sounds very close to the Tibetan Buddhists who speak of the, the like you are like uh, water droplets thrown up into the air for a brief time. You individual droplets. That's our consciousness. And you fall back into the greater sea, the oceanic the that space of water or whatever and you're part of that whole sea once more without individuation or individuality but you don't you're not obliterated when you die you're not erased i not for years now i i'd made my peace with when you're dead the lights go out ka-chunk like turning off a light bulb and it would seem like that wouldn't it if if we live in a universe where matter is is dead or rather non-living until it is incorporated into an organic molecule, which is also non-living. It's non-living until it's incorporated in a system that uses it to maintain itself, to reproduce itself, to grow. A living system. Then that organic molecule becomes a part of that living system and is, in that sense, alive. Now, I, I, I believe, okay, or rather even I, I speculate that all matter has, it might be at an exceptionally low level, is conscious, all right? Conscious in that a, a, a hydrogen, helium, carbon, nitrogen, whatever, they want to stay nitrogen, you know, what is it? If you, uh, if you break the bonds for nitrogen to make fertilizer, but it releases a massive amounts of energy, you split the atom, what do you get? An atomic bomb? 
a nuclear power plant. This isn't accidental. It it isn't. This isn't. It's not a. It's not because this matter has no energy or life to it or consciousness. Maybe we don't have the right words for it yet. But the fact that you can take uranium or plutonium or whatever you need when you break it down and it takes such massive amounts of energy to break it in the first place because it doesn't want to be broken. Why? Because it's conscious. Not conscious the way your cells are, not conscious the way you are, not conscious the way your digestive system is, but it wants to stay the way it is. And it takes a very long time for the, the cesium or the uh, cesium-137 or whatever, the plutonium, the uranium-235, whatever the hell it is, it gives off energy as it slowly deteriorates. And, and what happens? It turns to something else. But you can take it and turn it into something else. The alchemists, who were probably right, although they had the wrong equipment to do it, unless you follow the Jungian model, which I also believe is true, you can transmute. With nuclear, you can transmute lead into gold. That's not mysticism, it's not alchemy, it's a fact. Under the right conditions, you can change the molecular bonds, whatever it is, somehow, you can turn it to fucking gold, okay? It, it, it would cost more to turn it to gold than the gold that would, you would get out of the reaction, so it's not worth doing it, but scientists did. I think they did as far back as 1910 or something, you need to correct me on that, when they were able to do it, but they did, okay? The alchemists were right. They were engaging with a, a worldview and apparatus that was incompatible with doing such a thing. But they knew that it could be done. Okay? People like Paracelsus, I mean, they, they, were, they were limited by their worldview. A worldview they didn't even know was limiting them. The same way that we don't know how our worldviews are limiting us. We're still on the verge of trying to create quantum computing. Now, maybe they already have. God help us. Okay, we're still... And, and how is that? A computer? What the hell makes those things tick? Electricity and silicon chips. Rare earth minerals. Why? Because if they zap the damn things with laser light or, or electricity or whatever, they give off energy somehow... And we've managed through massive amounts of genius that I can't even fathom to build the damn cell phone that I'm using right now. The Whatever the hell it is, the platinum, I don't know what it even is, the rare earth minerals that they dug up from some mine in, in, in northern uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. They've got 10-year-old children digging in these mines. It's abominable. Okay, horrible exploitation, right? And we ought to give, we ought to pause we ought to give ourselves pause when we, we have to realize that there, there's massive exploitation going on to get these damn minerals out of the ground, right? Like, like decades ago, um, I was dating a girl and we were going to get married. And I utterly, absolutely refused to buy her a diamond. I said, look, I mean, and I'm not usually a crusader for such things. I don't usually boycott stuff or what have you. But it's like, I am not... I will not contribute anything to rebels in Sierra Leone murdering children. I will not buy diamonds that are soaked in the blood of innocence. 
I will not do it. And it was cool because she never wanted a diamond. Anyway, she wanted emeralds. Thank God, because that, that might have been a fight. That, some people break up over stuff like that, you know, but we broke up for different reasons. But she was absolutely fine with me, you know, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't bear the thought of buying a damned shiny rock that I can't even see to try to impress a girl who already loved me and didn't need me to buy something for her to make her love me more, a damned rock soaked in blood. No. Absolutely not. No. You know, but the, the case is, all of our minerals that make these things tick, you know, there's inequity across the whole system, which is a pity. I mean, we, we, don't, we don't want there to be any structures in the world that give the Marxists any credibility at all. We need to destroy... And that's another thing that I'm, uh, is in my mind to, to speak of in the midst of this what is philosophy definition. I've gotten off on this tangent because my question is, why is philosophy? What is it? It's a defense against the fear of death. Yet if these scientists are right, we have no reason to be afraid. We have nothing to fear. It's a massive change exceptionally painful I'm sure because I, I, I've not yet died I don't know but after the pain uh, one of those articles one of those articles on um, the the wet the co.uk let me look again I want to get this right uh, express.co.uk okay what happens when you die okay one woman said the world is is darkness and full of pain where you go when you die is full of warmth and light and you feel like you're awake for the first time and you've come home in that brief period of transition when you're you're still you before you go into the light um, now this to me is very reminiscent of the Tibetan book of the dead when you leave your body, at first you're, you're close to your body. You can see your loved ones who are sad. These people who have died and come back, can, they're not hallucinating. They can recount exactly what the physicians did to try to save them. And it's accurate. Okay, why? How is this? How in the hell is this possible? It's possible because you don't lose consciousness when you die. Because your energy doesn't, doesn't change. It's not created or destroyed. You don't, you don't become extinguished the way a filament in a light bulb will go off when you turn it off. But it still has its energy potential. If we run current through it once more, it'll light up once again. <clears throat> Until all of its, I don't know, elect electrons are stripped from the filament and the bulb burns out and you've got to replace the bulb. You know, unless the EU really makes a move and, and forces us to use uh, pathetic uh, fluorescent lights, the, the rays of which will cause cancer and make you sick and lower your sperm count if you're a man and God knows what it's doing to you if you're a woman. But let's hope the EU doesn't, doesn't uh, become the world governmental ruler over, over us all, right? And then in the name of, of warped environmentalism that's, that's uninformed by facts, uh, we're not, we've done horrible things to our environment, but we should stop it because it's making us sick and killing everything around us. 
because that's not a good thing to kill the the species that make the world function we we can't even we can't yet fathom the damage that we've done but i do not believe and i i have most of my life i swallowed that i no longer think global warming is is man-made we're not doing ourselves any favors by fucking up the environment all right but we are not causing global warming the sun fluctuates in its output okay and it can cause warming periods or cooling periods okay the the volcanism in the earth is is altered by the sunspot cycles okay they they're admitting you know the global warming enthusiasts okay one after another after another their numbers are falling down their figures are falling down they were wrong in all of their equations over and over and over and over again back in 1980 okay i was old enough that when they told me what they thought was going to happen to the world everyone believed it would be a new ice age that we were going into another ice age and within an eight year span eight years all of the scientists changed their minds and went from believing in the uh, oncoming ice age to an oncoming heat wave that will kill us all. And, and the destruction of the ozone layer, okay, that's a horrible thing, right? There were geo... Uh, what do they call that? Geoengineers, okay? Climatologists, scientists, geoengineers who thought we should put a hole in the ozone layer. And then we, we should um, fill the atmosphere with particulates because the sun is, is too strong. And, and, and we want to blockade the sun to stop the, the, the global warming or to heat up the atmosphere with rays. And, and we want to warm the atmosphere because we're heading into a new ice age and we want to offset the... No one knows what the fuck they're talking about. I'm not suggesting to you that I do. I'm merely a philosopher type. And I happen to have three letters I can put after my name, or I can put two letters with a period in front of it. I don't know if it, it's significant or means anything at all. Doctor. Okay? But I am telling you that they do not know what they are talking about. They don't. So I hope, I desperately hope, that people, we don't sell out our, our uh, the way we live in such that our standard of living drops to such a level you cannot imagine how low our standard of living will become if we throw out our electricity we need it i mean obviously there are frivolous things there are uh, we we could do without i think we could do without these damned cars which every person thinks they're entitled to having one <coughs> stuck in a traffic jam for three hours every morning you know, pumping exhaust and you're breathing that shit in. Okay, it's killing you. But that does not mean, in fact, the opposite. They're saying now that we've pumped so much particulate matter into the atmosphere without meaning to, on top of the geoengineers who are experimenting with weather control, that we are weakening the sun. The sun's re rays reaching the earth are diminished because of all of our particulate and pollution. And, and they are pumping silver iodine. That, that's the least of the chemicals they're pumping. And all that stuff, they say it doesn't hurt us. No, it does. And it's falling down on us from the sky. It can't be good. It's disrupting the environment. Why are all the bees dying? 
Why? Why are they dying? They're not dying because it's natural for them, right? They're dying because they're being poisoned by something that we have added to the environment, right? So I'm not against environmentalism. I'm not, God forbid. Okay, but I believe in it because I believe in what's best for human beings and for the creatures who live beside us in this world. Not because of some damn half-baked, really childish theory of greenhouse effect. Okay? And that does not... And so what? So now we, we, can, we can continue to fuck with the world even more now and destabilize the world. We don't, they, don't know, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know. But they're cavalier because we're all going to die from global warming and it's going to happen in the next 20 years. Well, I don't know about that. If the sun is weakened because of its sunspot cycle, we're at the maunder minimum, the temperature could plummet as it did in the 1600s. Okay? But we don't know that. I don't know it. I'm not a, an astronomer. I'm not an expert on the sun. But I do know, and it's from being well-educated and reading and reading a lot of these philosophers and thinkers and scientists, and, you know, some of it I'm not fully capable of understanding. That's a good thing. I think everyone listening to my voice right now ought to read stuff slightly above their level of comprehension. You'll grow that way. You'll become a better, uh, a, a more intelligent person by doing this, by challenging yourself, by by challenging your, your beliefs. Where did it come from? Who told you A or B or C? Why do they tell you that? Why do they believe it? Why do they agree? Our media, um, I, I, <laughs> I d don't agree with our, with our president in, in so many ways, I don't. But when he talks about the media, he's right. The, the media is the energy, is the enemy, I'm sorry. Wow, I've really yammered for an hour straight without ceasing. I don't know. I don't know if that's good or bad. Uh, but 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 what what do I, what do I, so ultimately what's my main point for all of this? You've listened to me for an hour. If you have, oh man, oh man, my hat's off to you. If you've listened for the last hour, thank you very much. Uh, even if you're mad and you disagree, thank you for listening. I'm, I mean, I don't think I would if I were on your end of things. What am I saying ultimately, okay? Because the ultimate overriding question for this whole episode, which I haven't even addressed directly, what is philosophy and why do we need it or want it or feel that it's useful for us? Uh, it's partially because we're inquisitive by nature. Uh, we're metaphysicians by nature because we're conscious and we want to know why. What is the significance of this, this entity that that appears to inhabit this body, this creature that, that is me, this continuous consciousness, which I identify as, as me, right? Why? What's his purpose? Well, there is no purpose. You, you make your purpose. So what am I ultimately saying in the end, uh, in this initial hour, other than uh, life after death is real, uh, the Buddhists and Taoists were probably close to being correct, even though they didn't have the science to understand. They, they did in their religious metaphors that, that there's more to our universe than anybody knows, has any idea. And philosophy, although it's, it's now little more than a form of enhanced literary criticism, used to be, it used, philosophy used to rule the sciences 
Okay, And it may be it can once more, or it can at least have a place of dignity. Right now, it is at a level of, of decadence, uh, ignobility, okay? Almost, it's almost to a level of, of despicable mountebanks, okay? Uh, a lot of the postmodern, a lot of this drivel is, is not only wrong, but it's wrong in a way that hurts people who try to engage it. And it's devastatingly bad for mental health, for physical, you know, for, for, for our ideas of our, of our meaning, you know, especially deconstruction. I mean, but most of it's fraudulent for the last 80 years. The majority are frauds. Uh, you know, they, they can sell you a book that you buy that tells you that the words you're reading in the book don't mean anything or the author doesn't really exist and the book you're reading doesn't have an author, but you're reading a goddamn book that's telling you that the words have no meaning. It's in anyone. No one believes that. They don't either, but they're making money lying to you. All right, so, I mean, it's, it's despicable. I mean, 20th, 20th century philosophy, most of it, most of it is, is degenerate and evil in a way that, that it'd be hard for me to draw a direct link, but I tell you it's there. Okay? It caused the genocides, the wars, the, the murder, murders, millions, millions of people are dead because of Mao and Stalin and Pol Pot and, and, and Kim Il-sung. Okay, and, and, and Chairman Mao, 50 million people dead. Okay, Stalin, 20 million. 20 million. Lenin, 5 or 10 million. Trotsky would have killed more, but he got chased out of Russia before he could do it. He probably helped kill a few million people. He was a general in the, the Civil War, the Russian Civil War, uh, after the Tsars were taken out and the, the provisional government under Kerensky was overthrown. Okay. These people are philosophers, right? Marx, he would have done more violence if he'd had the, the capacity. He didn't, okay? But people were inspired by him, and they did violence, and they killed people. It's no different than the Christians who murdered a lot of Muslims and Jews in the name of Christ for the Crusades. What are they doing? They're reading they're reading theologians. They're reading Augustine and Aquinas and God knows who else, okay, Philosophers. Philosophy used to be called natural science. That you were you were a, a, a man of you were a, a philosopher of the natural sciences, um, and it it encompassed physics of the world. It encompassed all of the Aristotle. I I shall read more Aristotle, and and if you read all of Aristotle and Plato. You've got it. You've got it. Everything. Everything. Uh, it, it said, it said uh, Whitehead said this, Alfred North Whitehead, that all philosophy is nothing more than a footnote for Plato. I would disagree with him only because I'm increasingly feeling the value of Aristotle. If you have Plato on the one hand, which is your mysticism, I mean, he's very, don't get me wrong, he has a lot of logic in his thought. But he, in the Mino, talks about uh, life, you know, reincarnation, and he can prove the soul came from a higher dimension because the slave who couldn't read or write understood geometric uh, equations. 
He didn't know the terminology, but he understood the geometry. And they did because that's a universal and those forms exist in an abstract uh, world, the world of forms, which is above us. It's, um, it's abstract form in, for lack of a better word, we'll say that in the heavenly realm, in the astral heavenly realm, a triangle exists in a perfected form as triangle. So if you, if you engage Plato and Aristotle... In their entirety, you've got it. Everything in philosophy that any of these, these patent salesmen, mountebank, degenerate liars might say in the 20th century and now the 21st century, Plato and Aristotle. These people, there's nothing new under the sun. These people aren't saying novel things. It seems that way. I think it seemed that way to me because I was, I was not fully acquainted with Aristotle and Plato. I haven't read his later dialogues in great depth. I haven't read the laws or the seventh letter in, in great depth, what have you, because it's difficult to read sometimes, even though he tries to write in dialogues. He never, except for the laws, I don't, or the seventh letter, he didn't write treatises. He wrote dialogues. It's amazing. Okay, and Aristotle was a scientist. Okay, uh, those who came after him, the Neoplatonists, the Middle Platonists, the Aristotelians, they were all scientists. They studied the stars. They studied astronomy and physics and hydro, how rivers flow and, and how the winds and the tides and everything. And as the years passed, it, after the Renaissance is when things began to divide. And there came a time in the 1700s when philosophy was uncoupled from the sciences and it devolved Initially, it, it was still speaking like theology, uh, but not theology, because philosophy questions, it doesn't, it doesn't say there are answers the way theology does. Theology says God is unknowable and vast and omnipotent and, om and almighty and all-knowing, and we can't fathom him, so let's spend the next thousand pages, I'll tell you about the attributes of God. And this person just starts making shit up, or drawing upon others who made shit up and refuting them by stuff he made up about God, which is supposed to be indescribable. You're not supposed to be able to speak of him. Theology, I, I have an increasing disrespect for it as the years pass, and I've studied more and more of it. Because it, it hasn't a leg to stand on, and it's, it contradicts itself out of existence. And by the seeds, its own seeds, the seeds of its destruction are embedded in it you know, and philosophy is not. Philosophy, although it, it came from theology, uh, perhaps theology came first. Um, philosophy does not have in it the seeds of its own destruction initially until you get to Hegel and then Marx and the New Hegelians and, and, and Schopenhauer, who I think tried really, really hard to fight back against the excesses of Hegel. And then you have Nietzsche, who is amazing, you know. Uh, but the postmodernists have used Nietzsche to, God is dead, so let's destroy everything. <clears throat> and I can, I can hear you all now. I can hear you all now. Well, Mr. Rogue Philosopher, you're, you're oversimplifying. You're, you're, not, you're disrespecting the, the structuralists. and the, All you're doing is, is you're hurting yourself. Your argument's flawed. You don't even, you're not grasping what they're saying. 
as if, as if I fully understood it, because obviously I don't fully understand it because I don't agree with it, as if my disagreement is, is, is a direct evidence of my lack of knowledge about it. No, I disagree with it because I know what it is. I know very well what it is, and it's wrong. And that is not, I will not compromise. It is wrong. That isn't to say that there aren't observations that they make. A lot of them, especially the, the, the continental existential thinkers, they, they spoke, they're, they're, uh, a lot, in a lot of cases, their initial diagnosis was correct. But the, the cure that they prescribe is devastating. And it's made worse because someone like Jacques Derrida is probably the most prolific philosopher. And I'll call him that. I'll give him that. The most prolific philosopher who ever lived, Jacques Derrida. I think he wrote like a hundred books or had a hand in them. Dozens and dozens and dozens of books. I mean, you can't, you, you, it's, it's stunning, Okay, and you crack them open and you read them. And what's he talking about? Language has no meaning. Words are violence. Logocentrism is is a violent, uh, oppressive patriarchy. Uh, Except we all use those words. Maybe I'm oppressed, you know, by by the women using these words. Who knows? You know, words are violence. Uh, there's no reality outside of the text, which he's kind of right about that because the words we use define our universe for us and everything that we speak of, we're not actually speaking of it. We're speaking of, we've created a signifier, okay, that speaks of the object in question, blah, blah, blah. You know, but his conclusion is that nothing has, has meaning. And it's, that's a good thing because we have to disrupt and destroy these systems of power that are, that are, are, are controlling us. And Michel Foucault, in a different way, he and Derrida were f- in fierce, fiercely arguing in the 60s and 70s. I don't know. I think near his death and after his death, uh, Derrida uh, was, was kinder to Foucault. Uh, but they disagreed on a number of... I, I, I don't think I understand why they disagreed, because it sounds like they're complementing one another's ideas. Foucault, everything is about... Uh, initially, it's about power. The panopticon is about how we're controlled by this invisible watcher. Even when the watcher isn't watching us, we act as though the watcher is. We're very rapidly coming towards a point where our surveillance is constant. But Plato said the same thing. You know, Plato's, I wouldn't want to live in his Republic. It'd be a horrible place to live. Devastating. Censorship of the arts, get rid of all the poets because they're, they're evil and they hurt children. Get, get rid of all these ideas that are evil. It would be a, it'd be a terrible place to live. No families. The guardians work for the state. There are different castes of people. Uh, you raise the children away from, there's no such thing as family anymore. You have to destroy it. To make the state stronger, you destroy the family for the sake of the city-state so that the loyalty is completely to the state and not to the family. I mean, it'd be, it'd be a horrible. I, I would not want to live in Plato's uh, Republic. No. No way. Uh-uh. <clears throat> but the, the surveillance is becoming centralized and constant. You know, and then, and then because Foucault's initial goals were to and I kid you not, and this is not slanderous, take more drugs and, and 
use his intellect to overawe and impress young men and to have his way with them. And he did. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands. And I don't think he cared so much about their age because he signed a petition at one point. He and Derrida both, a number of leading intellectuals did, to lower the age of consent to like 14 or 15 or lower, 13, so they could have their way with the young boys. Okay? Some of our greatest thinkers were, were friggin' pederasts. Okay? I, 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 I do not, you know, I, I just, I cannot, I cannot respect, but at least Michel Foucault wasn't about destructing everything and that nothing means anything anymore, but he thought that the axis of power, it, it permeates every relationship and all of the, our thoughts and that we're dominated. He made some good observations. He made some good points, but you don't even know if you read Foucault from beginning to end. There isn't a lot of his ideas change. He's not constant. He's not a, a systematic thinker, though he uses the apparatus of systematic uh, rubric, language. What am I saying in the, in the, in the final analysis? Okay. Uh, I need to get back to this topic in greater depth because I haven't really... Uh, I haven't really plumbed the depths or unpacked what is it? What is philosophy? What is it? You know, over the centuries, the last two and a half centuries, although Immanuel Kant tried to, I think he did not succeed, I think the idea of, of, of statements, synthetic a priori statements, okay, that add something new, I don't think it's possible. I don't think there's any such thing as a priori. I think everything that we know, we know it because we previously experienced it. And if you haven't experienced it, how can you know it? I don't think Immanuel Kant gave a satisfactory refutation uh, of um, David Hume. I mean, it, he, what he created was brilliant in many other ways. But the idea that we can create a, a, a proposition using categories out of words that adds new knowledge even though we've never experienced it in a way that is not mathematical. I don't think it can be done. I don't. Okay? Everything we know that we know, we know it because we've experienced it. The words we use, the words have meaning because we experienced what the word speaks of prior to using it. Okay? The first three, four, five years of your life. You're not speaking, but you're taking in massive amounts of, of experiences. You have to. By the time you're three or four, you start using words, you know, and you're not just mama, dada, gimme, gimme, smash, smash, right? Those words have meaning because you experience the world. You have experiences. You feel the meaning of those words in your body. You, you know... You cannot, it is impossible to speak of something that's, that's a priori. It's all a posteriori. Okay? So I don't, he, but he tried. He tried and, and, and he tried hard. And what he wrote is, 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 is absolute genius. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying anything about throwing away Immanuel Kant's works because they're brilliant. 
okay but but he did not succeed and and as the the decades passed philosophy divided into it had always been in two opposing camps, or at least two primary. I mean, we might be oversimplifying it by saying it's two, two parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. No, and, and, um, you, there for a time it was called the rationalists and the empiricists. Uh, uh, damn it, I can't remember what Kant called them. Uh, you have dogmatists, you've got... Uh, uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty called them something else, but he meant the same thing that Kant meant, but he used different terminology for it. That's another problem with its dec- the, the decadence of philosophy the last 200 years. Every philosopher you read is going to use different terminology for the same thing. Okay? Different terminology for the same thing. And so as you read one philosopher after another, each one of them, the the interlocutor that they're attacking or that they're arguing against or trying to defend themselves against, they will always use different language for the same thing. You know, that's why you read some modern philosopher who's talking about John Locke or or Newton or Kant or Hume or, or whatever. They're almost... you. They're almost unintelligible. It's almost impenetrable and impossible to understand what they're saying because for every one of them, they define them using different terminology. And that does make a difference in how you understand what someone else is trying to say. And because their understanding of what the other person is trying to say is, is, is flawed, every generation, the philosophers of 100, 200 years ago, well, let's say Immanuel Kant, the reconstruction of Kant, each successive generation, is flawed in a different sense than the previous one. Okay, and that just increases the misunderstanding. There is, there is truth in what Martin Heidegger said about the hermeneutic circle. That was originally created by a theologian named uh, uh, Schleiermacher. Okay, every time you pick up, a new reader picks up an old book, they're infusing it with a different understanding a different context and it may have nothing at all to do with what the writer initially intended to say when they wrote it but maybe it does or maybe you bring something new to the text that that redefines it in such a manner uh that that your reconstruction of the thinker and his work uh adds something new uh, that's authentic to what that thinker actually meant. You know, but how many of us can do that? I don't think most of us can. I think we pick a book up and we try to read it in context of their time, but we don't really know about their time. It's like a different country. But we know about our time, so we interpret what we're reading according to our understanding, our prior understanding of the world that we cannot help but take into the book that we're reading and imposing our meaning, okay? And it doesn't help that philosophers write badly and that they use different terminology. Every generation, it's a new terminology, uh, a new paradigm. And the, the more difficult it is to understand, the more they pride themselves on, well, it's difficult for you to understand me because I'm creating a new system of thought. No, you're not. It's impossible. That's not not possible. Uh, we think the way we think. Okay, you you don't 
open a book of philosophy. I mean, they try. They, they are genuinely trying to create a new means of engaging with the world, a new way of thinking. Heidegger didn't even call it philosophy. He called it thinking. Uh, like a higher order consciousness, a higher order grasping, understanding. Uh, in his later works especially, he, he um, really genuinely thought he was creating a new system of thought. Maybe he was doing something that was that hadn't been done in the way he did it. Thinking's thinking. There is nothing new under the sun. I will stand by my words. And as as the years passed and philosophy advanced, becoming more and more impenetrable, philosophy became the 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 the, the disconnected orphan of the sciences. And as far as Kant was concerned, and even those who came after him. The philosophy had not advanced in 2,500 years. Not in ethics, not in metaphysics, not in, not in uh, uh, rhetoric. Nothing. It, it has not advanced in 2,500 years. And those philosophers over the centuries who were also scientists of the natural sciences, okay, they advanced the sciences... But in the end, they did not advance philosophy. And now we live in an age where, unfortunately, philosophy has become just another form of literature, which is not a good thing. It's philosophy. It's not supposed to be nothing more than literature. Okay, but that's what it has become. And I don't know, I don't know how one can fix it. And it's not made any easier by the fact that we have two schools of thought Okay, two overarching primary schools of thought, analytic and continental. Analytic is people like Bertrand Russell, uh, Wittgenstein, uh, John Searle, logicians. Okay, I think, I think uh, in our day, modern day, someone like Stefan Molyneux would, would be a, uh, I, he might disagree with me. God help me if he ever hears this. He'd tear me to pieces. Okay, he's in the analytic school an Aristotelian and a logician. He is in the analytic school of philosophy, which starts with, with logic and mathematics and a more pure... Now, that's not to say continental thinkers aren't using logic. They are. But they draw from existentialist and phenomenological. And the early psychology in the late 19th century of uh, Brantano, Franz Brantano, uh, Edmund Husserl was the founder of, of phenomenology as we understand it. Hegel spoke of phenomenology as well. What he was speaking of was consciousness phenomenology. But he had a different interpretation of what consciousness was than uh, what Husserl or Heidegger or some of their followers uh, believed. So the phenomenology of Hegel, you can't really call him a phenomenologist because he's doing he has a different goal in mind than the phenomenologists do. Um, but it's neither here nor there, but the continental tradition draws from the existentialist, structuralist, post-structuralist, and postmodern, and phenomenological thinkers across the spectrum. And there isn't an overarching agreed where they all agree on everything they don't. But the, you can group them all together as continental thought. That's my, what I'm trained in, is continental thought. Uh, against my will, a big dose of postmodern structuralist drivel 
uh, and an equally a bigger dose of phenomenology, um, which many now say is is obsolete, and no one studies phenomenology anymore. Now uh, there are new schools of philosophy. Uh, objective they they drew from uh computer language and computer programming object orientated ontology okay where everything is e- equivalent where even non-living inanimate objects and i just said earlier in this discussion that the matter that makes up these objects is is conscious but i don't think that a rock has the same order of value as a human being. Again, that whole, let's get rid of the author, you know, uh, erase the author of the book, erase the, the, the one who is looking, erase everything, you know, erase the, the central subjective axis. Uh, it, it can be in, in the hands of a genius like Maurice Merleau-Ponty. It can be very seductive. It's wrong, but it can be very seductive because it seems like it's right. Okay, but what am I saying in the end? Um, continental thought, analytic thought, they've both ruptured so much. And, and, and neither one of them is, is heading in a, a positive direction. It's becoming more and more absurd because it's, dis, it's uncoupled from the sciences. Okay? Maybe if it were more scientific, I'd be too stupid to study it. Okay? I don't know. But it's become uncoupled from its moorings. And now... Both schools are, are, are drifting far off into the land of obscurantism, unintelligibility, uh, sophistry. And, and ultimately, it's, it's, it's tearing apart. It, it really is damaging the fabric of all of our lives. It truly is doing more damage. It's doing more harm than good. Because in spite of its lo- loss of, uh, of value... And, and, and accuracy, it, it still is held in high regard by people who aren't necessarily trained because we're all philosophers, because everybody has these questions, these big questions, because we, we are alive. We can't help but be philosophers and metaphysicians. Philosophy is you have an inquiry, you raise a proposition to try to solve that inquiry, and you engage that thought. I mean, so even, even, you know, the window washer, okay, you talk to the window washer for 10 minutes in a deep conversation, and they'll tell you what they've thought of, and it'll be remarkably close to what someone wrote 200, 300 years ago, because he's a philosopher too, all right? But, but the damage we've done, the postmodern thought, and now post-postmodern, where the excesses of it are, are uh, they claim the excesses of it are being checked and brought back into line. You know, the, the, the obscuritism for the sake of obscuritism is, is being contradicted. Um, I have no evidence of that. I, certainly where I went at my school, it was steeped in postmodern thought uh, without, criti- without criticism, without critical evaluation, uh, accepted hook, line, and sinker, you know, Derrida, political theology from Derrida all the way to the end of time, and, and Lacan and Foucault uh, and, and El, El Sasser, who was a psychotic murderer. Uh, and he wrote a long, long book about how he strangled his wife to death in a fit of psychotic, I don't know what, psych- psychosis, and murdered her. And he got off. He got away with killing her, you know, and Deleuze... 
who people now suggest that, that Gilles Deleuze is the next step in continental thought. And it, it is his thought that dominates more than, than Derrida or Emmanuel Levinas or, uh, you know, you name the thinker, it's all Deleuzean now. Deleuze, as far as I can tell, now, now I often have felt that the people who the acolytes of these philosophers add more to what they're saying than they intended to say. And all I can get out of what I've read of Deleuze, and maybe this is unfair to Deleuze, I can't get anything out of Deleuze except that he just wants to tell everybody in the establishment to fuck off. You know, and to happily do that. And like, fuck you. You know, no, I can't really get to the core of his meaning. I mean, if, if I read the articles in the Internet Encyclopedia, Philosophy, the Stanford Encyclopedia, they'll give you a long description, a noble description of the, the greatness of, and the genius. Okay, great. I'll probably have to refresh my memory. But all I've ever got when I tried to read A Thousand Plateaus, he's just telling everyone to fuck themselves is deliberately writing contradictory statements to try to smash the, 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 the paradigm that you're locked into, to, to smash it and to try to open you up to, to new meanings, like what Derrida is doing, but on, in a different manner and on a different level. The, the schizophrenic of capitalism, nature of capitalism, he wants to smash all of that. And, and when Deleuze talks about what is philosophy... He wants to smash the idea of philosophy itself to open everything up, right? To, I think, I think, to destroy the Western canon, uh, to, to, to annihilate everything that's holding us back in our whatever we should be, our true understanding of thought and blah, blah, blah. And, and I tried reading A Thousand Plateaus. I tried, okay? It's impenetrable. Now, if I had the right, the the Routledge published the the the, uh, the Stanford the Oxford Guide to to the Thousand Plateaus or whatever I can read that shit and maybe make sense of it. But when I tried reading, uh, there's a, there's a bunch of books out there that I'd recommend for anyone to read. They're short. They're they're clearly written even about the drivel. It's clearly expressed. Okay, uh, guides of the perplexed. It has nothing to do with Maimonides, so there may be a book about him. But they're little books, like 100, 140, 50 pages about Plato and Nietzsche and Marx and um, uh, Derrida and all these thinkers, all of them. And it's just very short introductory books about their thought and summations, summaries of their thought, right? They're very excellent books. They're very well written. Guides of the Perplexed. If I read one of those, Deleuze, I think I have it. I haven't read it yet. You know, it, it gives you, a, 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 it attempts to give you a description. I think the one about Derrida, the Routledge Guide to Jacques Derrida, he just starts happily spewing out whatever he wants. He's like, I don't even have, I think in the introductory paragraphs, if I remember correctly, he's like, I don't even, I don't even have a point to make. We'll talk about Derrida, but my goal isn't even to explicate Derrida. It's just to, to, to deconstruct and to play fucking games with your head. Because, because philosophy is a dying discipline. That's why. It is a dying discipline. And, and when we look around and see that nobody, and for, for good reason, and I agree with them, nobody's going into the humanities now because they're corrupted and they're bankrupted. Their value is gone. The, the philosophy is dying. 
it's dying because it isn't just uncoupled from the sciences. It's uncoupled from reality, the reality that we experience every day. You know, and I can just hear the Heideggerians howling at me right now. No, no, Heidegger helped uncover the, the center, the core of what the truth is and reality and blah, blah, blah. And yeah, you know what? <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I know Heidegger pretty well. I could stand to know him better. I should learn German. Philosophy is uncoupled from reality. In other words, it's becoming unhinged and insane. The idea that anybody would entertain, even for half of a second, some of the stuff that people are being taught now, they're paying. I think, I, um, overall, I paid $300,000 in borrowed money to get an education in thinkers that are saying with great solemnity that they have nothing to say. What a, what a, I've been robbed. I don't, how long have I been bitching? Um, so what do I mean ultimately? What is philosophy? It's, it's, it's the, the um, organized, intelligent, thoughtful, systematic study of reality, of, of what we experience, of, of how we live and the reasons for what we do and why do we live the way we live and what does it mean? And, and I mean, there are still people now dealing with these things. The primary questions have always been, what is real? What should I do about it? How do I behave? What is truth? Uh, what is the purpose of this? You know, I think uh, Kant, how do I, how do I know what I know? How should I act when I know it? Uh, and God, and the, what is the third one? What, who, who, you know, who am I? I'll come back to Kant in, in another episode and, and I'll delineate those questions in a clearer manner. Because he elucidated the three primary questions that have always been in, in most philosophers. You know, they're, they're, they're are very basic questions that all of us have that we haven't satisfactorily answered even though there have been heroic efforts to do so, which have created beautiful works of science and art. And the thing even about philosophy is even if you refute someone and you smash their theory, their books aren't going anywhere. I do not support burning any books. Although I'm mad enough about Dara burning books of Derrida, I would not. I would not. And so one, even if they've been refuted... You can come back to their work as if they haven't been. Their work still stands. It still exists. You can reinterpret it and come to their defense and, and reignite that side of the argument. Philosophy hasn't answered these questions deeply enough. You know, you read Kierkegaard and Nietzsche. They have a, a, an <laughs> unbounded wisdom. In, in someone like Nietzsche and Derrida and uh, and sorry uh, Kierkegaard not Derrida Kierkegaard um, but in the end I mean everyone every new person in the world has to has to interact with and grapple with these questions and they're they're they will they're meant to you one cannot help but do so and philosophy used to be the, the queen of the sciences. 
and now, unfortunately, it's it's a, a rowboat floating in the midst of a vast ocean, disconnected from reason itself, disconnected from logic, from science, from reality. The analytics would would dispute this, and they too have gone in such a uh, an insular direction in their modes of thought. They're increasingly mathematical. Uh, they too have lost their way. Both schools need to connect, and that's that's in that's in. There are a number of books called "What Is Philosophy," but there's one in particular that I find a great deal of wisdom in, uh, and 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 I think that the man who wrote it has a good solution. Um, but that's you know that's for another day. He actually had an answer to the question, "What is philosophy?" Um, I studied under him, a brilliant man. So, what is it? I'm only opening up the question. I don't have the answer in this particular evening to give. But there is an answer. There are methodologies, and and there are ways to restore philosophy, I hope, to its former glory and and the, the respect that it deserves to have. If we cannot do this, then we should ignore it. If it becomes increasingly disconnected from the meaning of its own words and language, it's nothing more than than postmodern literature, you know, like like James Joyce, who was very philosophical in what he wrote. But, you know, Finnegan's Wake, it's jibber jabber, it's it's Gallic, it's who I I can't make sense of. And no one would call Finnegan's Wake a work of philosophy. I don't think they call it literary modern literary work like you know one of the modernists but if that's all philosophy has become if it's nothing more than a poorly written form of literature because it is poorly written if it's if it's only literary if it's nothing but literature okay it's bad literature we should ignore it and read real literature <laughs> it's called fiction writing novels and poetry short stories and films and plays and we ought to just you know put it up on the shelf it's an inferior form of literature let's go on if that's all it is then we don't we don't need it any longer let's get rid of it i don't want to get rid of it i think it has a usefulness it has a purpose and it once again it it can be noble once more right now it's not <laughs> it's not it's not. I, I challenge you, if there's a good uh, bookstore or on Amazon, uh, God knows I haven't read every book that's out there about philosophy in some ways or other ways, but I guarantee you, go ahead, s- search the philosophy section, okay? You're, just, you're going to find stuff that's disconnected from reality, increasingly so more and more and more disconnected from reality you're not going to read something that's going to illuminate you unless you go back to aristotle and plato uh you know the 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 original philosophical thinkers who knew what the hell they were doing socrates they knew what they were doing and they had a goal and a purpose there isn't one now the fact that you have a goal is a sign that you're one either one of the oppressors or you're deluded no, we need to destroy that central axis. There's no longer a goal because there's no longer a, a person seeking the goal. There's no longer a writer. There's no longer a central author or axis. 
the words, the sentences, the statements, deconstruct them, do so in such a way as to, you know, it's not even to deconstruct them to ultimately define what the meaning of it is. It's to deconstruct them so that it means nothing, so that you can free yourself from the shackles of, of knowledge and know the real truth, which is there is no truth, everything is relative. It's horrible. It's, it's, it's horrible. If that's their purpose, that, that's a terrible thing to do. And all the while, you're laughing all the way to the bank writing these books, which are destroying the hope of an entire generation of young people while fraudulently robbing them of their money in making them in debt so much so that they'll never get out of it they'll never be able to get a home or have a family because their debts are so massive from student loans I think the debt right now is 1.7 trillion dollars for what for trash that's what trash okay garbage and you walk out of the school and you have a degree you're never going to use and you go why the fuck did I study that what do I know what have I learned that's done me any good nothing okay that's what and that's the answer and you know I'm right everyone who's been through a humanities program even literary even literature because all literature now is defined by literary critics who who are these people they're using their paradigm to define all literary work. It doesn't matter what the author originally intended who wrote the play or the novel or the movie or the, the, the short story or the poem. It's all defined now by these modernist, postmodernist, deconstructionist thinkers. So it doesn't matter what you even study anymore. It's all the same. And what did I tell you it was a few minutes ago? It's deconstruction. That's all. You walk out and you're a total nihilist. And you paid you know, a quarter of a million dollars to, to study nothing. I, I had some of the best teachers probably in America, although the program I think that I went to was, was not very highly regarded. And in the end, I educated myself. I taught myself more. I mean, granted, what I learned there helped guide me on what I taught myself, but I feel like I walked out of that school with colossal debt having educated myself more effectively than I was educated. That's not how you ought to feel when you have a doctorate. <laughs> but uh, that's enough. I'm done for this day. I'm done for the evening. Uh, the episode's brought to you by our usual sponsors, the silicon sands of the Egyptian deserts blowing across the last bit of African soil into southwestern Asia and the Israeli desert and the Negev. It's brought to you by the silver iodide particles that are falling from the sky, blocking the sun. Brought to you by the tetragrammaton and Cogliostro's bones, wherever they may be. His bones trapped behind a brick wall somewhere are stirring. He wants to get out. He wants to walk the earth once more and practice his magic. He is still there, waiting, waiting to wear another body like a glove, the greatest magician charlatan of his age. He and Mesmer are going to have another duel and battle it out somewhere in the ether. That's the end for this, that's the end for this episode.
so so long goodbye god bless <laughs> have a great day and be well